I'm Caroline, a yoga teacher with a special interest in menopause based in Edinburgh. And hi, I'm Dr. Clara, GP with a special interest in menopause based in North London. Together, we are the Menopause Sisters, and we are here to guide and support you through your menopause journey. I know quite a few people going to the march in London today. Do you know anyone going? Yeah, the, the Make Menopause Matter March, um, which is which is great. Great movement um, based down in Parliament Square today. Um, quite a few friends, quite a few colleagues going down. I know Dr. Louise Newson is going to be heading up um, the Newson Health constituent down there and um Verna Danzabrook as well so it's brilliant it's it's all about you know us working together whether you're male or female to really bring and highlight awareness to this which is which is so important and you know I know that Carolyn Harris is, is quite uh, has, has spoken today on Radio 4 just about how you know in hindsight she realizes that she was per- probably perimenopausal before she you know before she even knew what that was and um and I think that's just quite telling, isn't it? That people, women just don't realize that this is a thing and that, um, that there's treatment, there's advice, there's support out there that can help. Yeah, and I remember her saying, or I'd heard her saying recently actually that um, it came to her attention even more so when she overheard a work colleague actually talking about how much she was gonna to have to pay for HRT. And she's a, an MP in Wales or and uh, or lives in Wales and I, I'm in Scotland and neither of us have to pay for our HRT, we get um, free prescriptions. So that sort of began to steamroll, I guess a sense of equity and equality really around this because it affects everyone as we often talk about, whether that's in the workplace, in family life, at home. Um, so yeah, it's brilliant to hear that there's uh, lots and lots of activity in Parliament Square today and a discussion actually in Parliament around uh, around this topic. Yeah, let's try and um, support the bill that, that is trying to be pushed through that just is, that is all about menopausal awareness and support and, and services for women. Uh, yeah, and just that support is great. So brilliant. So we're really, really pleased to have Dr. Helen Douglas with us today. Um, She's an author, editor and advocate. And Helen spent 20 years in academia before a challenging surgical menopause at the age of 41. Helen writes on subjects society typically prefers to ignore, which includes menopause, adverse childhood experiences and shame. Helen is also the founder of the Dignified Menopause Initiative, a co-founder at the Menopause Inclusion Collective and a trustee and volunteer at Menopause Cafe. Helen describes herself as a slow runner, medium paced indoor rower and she lives in deepest Scotland with a bear called Willoughby. In her spare time she doodles about a little blue hen called Maud. I'm kind of wishing I had a blue hen. I've got a couple of hens in my garden, Helen, which I adore. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today Um, and we've sort of met or connected through um, a film we were part of for NHS 24. Could you tell me a little bit about how you were approached to do the film? Yeah, absolutely. I I connected with um, Lisa um, a couple of months ago and she was pulling together a film for NHS 24 and I just thought, absolutely, why not? Because in the past, I would have said no because I like to fly under the radar screen and I'm always happy for somebody else to be up there doing it. But then it occurred to me, Everybody else thinks that, and nobody steps forward. And so I thought, right, this is this is actually the year that I start to say yes more often. 
And um, so I did. And it was my first actual outing since lockdown, you know, other than sort of locally. And um, so, yeah, I hopped on the train and went through to Queen's Ferry and spent the day with Lisa, ran around in, in bright neon lycra. And um, it was it was just fantastic. Lisa is this this powerhouse of enthusiasm and tenacity. And uh, the, the film that she put together was just, yeah, it, it really blew my mind, actually. And I, I think, I mean, Lynn with 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 her creative artwork and uh, yeah, it was it was just positively or not positively. It was pragmatically optimistic. That That's a phrase I like to use because I think you can have toxic po- positivity where, you know, you're, you're painting a picture that's perhaps not realistic, but. I thought it painted a, a realistic picture of a lot of the struggles that, that many of us go through, but also some of the lighter, um, brighter side of menopause, which I think it, it's good to focus on that as well, because it's, it's not all doom and gloom, is it? No, exactly. No, we, we often say that actually there's, you know, we can find a positive side. And I loved what you'd said in the film about the uh, Japanese calling it second spring, you know, that the coming out the other side and finding light again, almost. It's like coming out of the autumn winter if you have been struggling. Um, and we acknowledge that not everybody struggles. There's plenty of women that are able to sail, sail through their menopause journey. But for many women, it can be quite tough. And like you say, Lisa, full of energy. Um, and what she put together was just wonderful. We'll make sure we share the link with our with our listeners but there's four women yourself included myself included um talking about their menopause journey and being very honest and actually like you helen i i'm not one to often be that honest (laughs) that personal especially on camera (laughs) nationwide but like you thought actually i've got to use my voice i'm I've got a voice and I felt privileged to have that voice. And I thought it's my duty to share it because there are many women who hopefully this this will help. Yeah, and I think what I've, I've gathered from, from watching it is what we've spoken about before, Caroline, is is the interesting, the interesting take on the menopause in that it isn't a one size fits all. There isn't, you know, A to Z of symptoms and you must have A, B and C before we do, you know, the next step actually what it is is that every woman on that video was having symptoms unique to them um which were changeable and um, which often left them feeling quite muddled quite confused um but i also really had and i really love the positivity of it as well the overall feeling that it was a positive thing because we are very keen to promote it to promote the perimenopause and menopause as being just like you said caroline that second spring and that actually this can be, you know, the second half, the better side, you know, you can you can make some positive changes. Um, so, yeah, I think, well done, guys. It was great. So, Helen, we were, we were going to talk about a bit about um, your perimenopause journey. And I know that in the in the video, which obviously Karen said she will share later, um, you spoke about how you went into a surgical menopause at the age of 41. Can you tell us a bit about the lead up to that and your and your decision to go through with surgery and and then sort of after that, what happened? Yeah, I mean, my my decision to, to have surgery was really quite sudden. Mm. Um, I'd, I'd had a difficult gynecological history leading up to, to the surgery. I'd had endometriosis and ovarian cysts and uh, six or seven fibroids. So life was becoming uncomfortable. And um, from seeing the gynae consultant to, to the surgery was exactly five weeks, which was just incredible. Mm-hmm. And I was offered various options 
you know, um, trying a perhaps a chemical menopause initially. But I just decided to go nuclear because A, I was 41. I had never wanted children. So it wasn't an issue of, well, perhaps, you know, I, I need, I would like to retain my uterus and my ovaries. And I just thought, well, what's the point of, of going at it piecemeal, having a little, having something done and then going back? It's just going to drag out the whole process. And rather naively, I thought I would just go and have surgery, take six to eight weeks to recover, and then I would be back fighting fit as if nothing had happened. And that was really far from reality, primarily because I lacked awareness. I think that's that's the major thing. I really I really had no idea what was going on. And um, I I bumbled I bumbled through the, the menopause jungle for certainly the first three years after surgery. I wasn't using HRT. I had, again, no awareness that my, my issues were menopause-related because I wasn't having hot flushes and night sweats then. I was having predominantly the psychological issues. I was having the depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. And, um, yeah, it, uh, it, it all came to a head sort of three or four years after surgery. And uh, that's really when things started to turn around, when I started on HRT. I also take antidepressants. And I find those two together, they seem to, to smooth my mood out and they certainly deal with the anxiety. Because I'd had issues around anxiety and depression really since my mid-teens, for me, those, those, those two, the powerful combination of HRT and, um, and antidepressants just, they tick the boxes for me. And uh, yeah, I'm thankful that they do because it was really quite an unpleasant time. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I'm sorry that it, it, it led to, you know, this this. The, the worsening of your psychological symptoms in in many ways tell me when you when you went to, for surgery but you know before you even had the surgery or even at, you know as leaving hospital did anyone mention the menopause to you was that a was that a discussion that you'd had with anybody no no not at all um when i went to see my my gynae surgeon we knew one ovary was coming out we weren't sure about the other one so whether that's why it wasn't mentioned or not um, I have no idea. But no, I, I left hospital with just two pieces of information or two pieces of advice, which I, you know, I mentioned in, in the film, which were don't lift anything heavier than a kettle of water for six weeks and refrain from sex for the same duration. And that was it. Um, although I have to say the, the health care I received was incredible. It was just superb. I could not fault it in any regard. I had amazing care. I think it's really interesting, isn't it, that that you're plunged into a, a surgical menopause and yet these things aren't fully, you know, fully discussed. Because actually we know about the long-term health implications now much more, much more, we're much more aware of the long-term health implications now of being plunged into a surgical menopause, certainly at a younger age. Having done your research, Helen, were you were you kind of sort of suddenly aware? Was this something that was slowly dawning on you that that might happen or might might be implicated having had your surgery? Bizarrely enough, no, no. It it was only the fact that um, I started to have a real issue with GSM mm. and a lot of bleeding and spotting, and I'd also had a really recalcitrant issue with um, granulation tissue on the vaginal wall after surgery. So I kept going back and having that um, cauterized with silver nitrate again and again. And it was three years after surgery that I went for a checkup and somebody said, hmm, I wonder if HRT might help. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it's in your brain, it just light bulb comes on and you think, oh, my God, yep, the hair loss, the brain fog. And yeah, 
within, I think, a fortnight of, of starting the HRT, the Oestrogenoni patch, my joints didn't ache and my, my gums felt better mm. and my skin was better. It was just, it was almost like night and day. It was, it was that, you know, that distinctly clear. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? We should, we should mention that um, amongst many of the symptoms associated with the menopause, um, you refer to GSM, which is the urinary symptoms of the menopause. And essentially that is what people talk about as being vaginal dryness and uh, recurrent urine infections potentially and pain during sexual intercourse and sometimes even urine leakage or urgency. So you need to rush to the loo to pass urine. And, and vaginal dryness is really underestimated, isn't it? It's really something that's not talked about enough. And we try and we try and mention it as much as possible. But obviously that was a major symptom for you. And mm. hot flushes and night sweats, which are often on, on the top of most doctors' um, list of symptoms, wasn't. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Vaginal dryness for me, the confusion came because initially it didn't feel dry um, or I didn't feel any dryness. I was getting... And I think this is something that Jane Lewis in her really fantastic book, Me and My Menopausal Vagina Flagged Up, I was getting sort of profuse, watery, milky discharge. And so I thought, well, I'm clearly not having an issue with vaginal dryness. But of course, I now know that, you know, to look out for changes in, in the type of discharge that you're getting, if you're getting any, because that can be an indication of, um, of problems. Yeah. Yeah. I think I mentioned in the video, I really had suffered over the last six months with it, almost like a recurring thrush um, and a sort of feeling of almost getting cystitis and feeling very, very sore, actually. Um, and uh, vaginal oestrogen has been a game changer for me. Um, I, did, or I think I remember taking a photo of it and getting it, my prescription and sending it to, to my sister, Dr. Claire, because I, it, was like, it was like a sweet shop. It had just arrived and I was just so excited. And it's a, quite amazing after even just a week, the difference. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's one of the issues that is so easily treated. And yet I, I find, um, certainly with my work with Menopause Cafe, that's the one topic that, that people find they really don't want to bring up. And I, I think it's a shame. Um, I totally understand because five years ago, there's no way I would have made a film talking about vaginal dryness. But um, it's it's really no, you know, the, the, the words and the topic, it's really no biggie. I think it's it's getting the words out into everyday conversation, just getting them out there that, you know, it's not a taboo subject, almost within a taboo. And um, yeah, it, it take, I think it takes the power away from the words by using them, you know, appropriately and just using them sensitively in, in terms of the conversation we're having here, um, and I think that it, that chips away, that gradually, gradually chips away at some of the some of the stigma and, and the taboo and the shame around the words. Absolutely, and it's been great through um, Menopause Awareness Month, and obviously it's a, it's a, just a month, but you feel like there's real kind of gathering of, of chat and, and, and talking more about these issues um, and using, like you say, Helen, the words in the context and using them more to make them less of a taboo. You mentioned the Menopause Cafe, and that was initially um, why I had reached out, actually, because I'd heard so much about the Menopause Cafe, you know, follow them on Twitter, love all the work um, they have done and are doing. Uh, what's your role there with them? I am a volunteer and a trustee. I went along to the very, very first menopause cafe, which was uh, in Perth, Scotland in 2017. And I went along as just 
just an interested person who was having a really difficult time with their menopause. And um, I was just absolutely blown away by the the sense of camaraderie in 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 the coffee shop. And it was it was not something that I'd experienced. And hats off to to Rachel Weiss and um, Gail Jack and Lorna Fotheringham. Those those three got together and they ran the first cafe. And there was just so much um, feedback from that event asking when are you going to do the next one. And uh, so a couple more of us came on board and it's, it's really, it's taken off from there. We became a charity in 2018. And by the end of this year, there will have been over 700 um, individual menopause cafe events, both online and uh, face-to-face. Pro- I mean, the, the, the locations, it's, it's, I jotted them down. Recently, Mozambique, Mexico, Bahrain, Nairobi, Toronto, Connecticut, Republic of Ireland, and in the UK from Elgin to Exeter and Wales to Winchester. So it's 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 fantastic to see how they really you know that they're spilling out um, all over the globe. So it's uh, it's great. I saw a patient recently who lived abroad, and in order to get any hormone replacement therapy, she needed to have various ultrasound scans, bloods biopsies she needed to go back and have an MRI of her womb actually HRT was was actively discouraged for her and and it's just such a shame isn't it because you know if HRT isn't an option for you and you decide not to there are other things that that can be done but actually you need to be kept fully informed of all the possible treatments available and so ensuring that the menopause cafe gets out there and goes global is fantastic. And we often talk about connection, don't we, Claire? And I'm sure, Helen, you must have found this in that first meeting in Perth, just being able to be amongst other people talking about similar issues. And we know we're all unique and we have our own unique sense of symptoms, but being able to discuss openly or listen comfortably. Um, And we were talking to somebody last week who had gone through menopause at 15, 16, and uh, she's now an advocate for uh, the the Daisy Trust. And um, she was saying a very similar thing. You know, they they bring people together to be able to talk about their early menopause. And she said it was a game changer for her to be able to be connected to and surrounded by others who were going through a similar similar journey. Yeah, and I think that, that um, talking talking about it with friends and colleagues and loved ones, you know, making those connections, but also making it um, a chat that you have with your family and your sons and your, your husbands. And, you know, everybody everybody will be affected by this. Um, you know, 50% of the population is going to go through this at some point in their lives and having the awareness is so important. So Helen, tell us more about kind of your work within the cafe. What does it involve and what role do you have as part of that? I, I spend the early hours of the morning when I should probably be asleep, but I'm menopausal, so I'm not, um, creating, creating content, managing Twitter, and Instagram, and trying to um, raise funds. And that's something that's um, obviously as a charity, that's um, always at the forefront of our minds. We're, we're small and we're relatively nimble and we, we have minimal um, operating costs, but obviously we still, you know, we still have some, some costs that, that have to be covered. So yeah, hatching grant applications and um, pulling those all together. Um, you probably know that that takes quite a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And last year in, in 
response to lockdown, I rolled out the uh, online ones. And we held those once or twice a week for most of last year. And the one good, th- I think one of the brilliant things that, that lockdown um, brought with it was the fact it vastly increased our reach because we went, we adopted Zoom and there there's no barrier. And if somebody has internet connection, it doesn't matter where they are, you know, literally whether they're, we, we connected with somebody in Kathmandu one day and it just makes the world a very small place. And I think that's great because it comes back to connection, doesn't it? And it, you know, it builds connections and yeah, it just, it, I think it fosters this sense of, togetherness and you know there's, there's there's always a lot of compassion when we're having these these discussions and there's an innate understanding i think that that's and that's very very powerful because people who often come to along to the events they they've probably or invariably haven't spoken about it at all ever to anyone some of them think they're going mad they think they're alone and those those two things are the the most common feedback comments that we receive um, when people leave the events, thank goodness I now know I'm not alone. And thank goodness I now know I'm not going mad. And I think it's such a powerful, powerful um, connection being made. We get some very similar feedback, Claire, don't we? We, do, we often do workshops together. So Claire's the doctor side of it. I'm the yoga side of it. And actually it's finding connection. Um, and the women office often just, that's it, that's it. It's, you know, thank you so much because they're able to find researched, well-documented information, um, have that connection with Claire and be able to ask some of those medical questions they might not get answers to elsewhere or easily, but also just have some time to chat amongst each other, find out what's helped them, what's helped other women, um, and then obviously a little bit of a bit of yoga. Helen, can anyone set up a menopause cafe? Yes, indeed they can. Indeed they can. Um, if they head, a, head over to our website, www menopausecafe.net and there should be a link there to a how-to guide have a read of that and download the, the working agreement sign that and send it off as long as the events they are always open to absolutely everyone without exception they're always free and there are no speakers so as, as long as you you know you stick to those principles then um, yep anybody anybody can run one Wonderful. Um, you mentioned um, in some of the Zoom rooms, potentially in some of the cafes you've you've been part of, um, there have been women that perhaps have never spoken about their menopause journey ever before to anyone. And when we know that there are you know there are certain groups, whether that's um, around religious beliefs or ethnicity or socioeconomic reasons that perhaps can't get information easily or perhaps don't feel they're able to open up and talk about this topic. Um, and so actually sharing um, the work of the Menopause Cafe just sounds uh, sounds fantastic. And that leads me on to a question around, um, you're a co-founder of uh, the Menopause Collective. And this really struck me when I was um, connecting with you um, over the last couple of weeks, because um, it's very much about equality and equity. Um, for the, for the diversity of menopause experiences, I think is, is possibly the, the phrase that is on the website. Um, and this is something very, I feel very passionate about. Um, I'm one of the team at Edinburgh Community Yoga and uh, we facilitate trauma-aware yoga and trauma-informed yoga. The idea being that we can take yoga into the community because yoga can be a very sort of 
elitist activity in, in expensive, lovely studios. Could you tell us a little bit more around the Menopause Collective? Yeah, the, the Menopause Inclusion Collective, it was the brainchild of Sarah Williams. And I joined uh, alongside Nina Kuypers of Black Women in Menopause. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a collaboration of menopause activists, advocates, experts by lived experience, with, with an interest in advancing as you say, equality, diversity and inclusion in the menopause movement, because we recognised that the current discourse around menopause was becoming particularly polarised. And our hashtag is include my menopause, because when I was looking, perhaps maybe social media or even in in print media and, and TV, I was not seeing somebody who I could relate to. And by that, I mean someone who is autistic, and again, I mean, if we t- we're talking about uh, Nina Kuypers with her Black Women in Menopause movement. How representative of the average person going through menopause do we see being represented? I think it's 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 lacking, and it's it's always good to ask ourselves: Who are we not including? Who are we leaving out? And yeah, it's it's. Again, I mean, we're just we're all volunteers, just a little bit crazy, I think, just with with passion and uh, and drive, just to to try and I suppose change, just yeah, just and also add, um, we had our first debate on World Menopause Day, and it was just refreshing, just to see so many different faces coming together and looking at things from just completely different angles, and um, I think it's it broadens the lens, it's, it widens the lens on 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 menopause and. Uh, for me, it was a, a timely and a, a timely realization that perhaps some of the the messages that I put out, uh, certainly as, as regards maybe the content for Menopause Cafe, I would always use a particular set of images. Whereas it taught me, well, hang about, I need to. Who am I leaving out? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it taught me tiny lessons. So uh, I'm certainly grateful to uh, grateful to Sarah Williams for that. Yeah, it's, it's a conversation we've had quite a lot actually. Um, particularly when you look at, like, say, Instagram or Facebook or any of the social media and, you know, look at the images representing perimenopause and menopause. And you can probably tell, for listeners that don't know, um, myself and Claire, I guess we could call ourselves mixed race or biracial. There are many different terms, um, but we are definitely a bit brown. And, um, you know, this is something we noticed, actually. And when we did our first workshop together I'd, I'd said to Claire I think we should do something with our faces on it because we have a privileged situation that we had an education um we both have uh voices we can use but actually we don't look like the average person talking about menopause at the moment in social media and just being aware of that so um I lo- it really resonates actually Helen what you were saying you know who are we leaving out that's yeah. often a question question we ask isn't it Claire it is absolutely and I think that there's there's lots of you know the, the thought processes are happening about that now much more readily than perhaps they were even even two or three years ago um thinking about how you know, different ethnicities will be experiencing their symptoms, their perimenopausal symptoms differently, and how actually in some in some 
ethnic groups and in some cultures, there isn't a word for the perimenopause or menopause. And certainly, you know, when I have consultations with women face to face who require a translator, we can't we can't often talk about vaginas because the translators won't necessarily use those words. And that's obviously not not all translators, but certainly for some, it's a very difficult conversation to have and to break down that barrier and to be more inclusive is really, really vital if we're going to make talking about the menopause as as mainstream. And it's something we haven't yet had a chance to explore on our show. We're still early stages, but actually, you know, looking at um, race, ethnicity, gender as well, um, and sexual orientation, that's a a huge area there as well that that needs to be included, that needs to be discussed within the perimenopause and menopause conversation. And so, Helen, you also mentioned at the start, or I think maybe Caroline did, the you, you being a founder of the Dignified Menopause. Indeed. Crazy <laughs> idea. Um, with another powerhouse, actually, um, over in Nepal. Wow. Um, uh, Rata Budel is a, a nurse and an activist um, who's literally this whirlwind of energy and enthusiasm around her main thrust of the work is, is around menstruation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rata and I were chatting a few months ago and I just came out with this really foolish idea of let's get together and hold a summit because you know we again it comes back to this widening the lens yes in the UK we're talking about menopause increasingly more often but there are still great swathes of of the globe where that's just simply not the case and Rada is founder of the Dignified Menstruation Foundation and so we we borrowed if you like the 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 term the dignity from that on the basis that dignity is the right of a person to be valued and respected for their own sake. So dignified menopause is, is simply about that. It's, it's about widening the lens. It's about um, recognising that we need more of an emphasis on womb to tomb, mm. looking at the entirety of the menstrual journey, so from puberty uh, to menopause, because I think at the moment there's, there's this emphasis quite rightly on childbirth, but then on the other end of the spectrum, there's, there's a vacuum, or there always has been a vacuum. So we're uh, on, on the 8th of December, which is International Dignified Menstruation Day, we are hosting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've called it a smart summit. It's just, it's just a load of activists getting together over Zoom. And um, just, just to highlight how menopause is perhaps dealt with, perceived, received, in different parts of the world. So we've we've got a speaker from the United Arab Emirates. We have a speaker from Uganda, which I'm really excited about, and Indonesia and the USA. So just to just to sort of you know inject a little a little um, globalization to the menopause debate. And how are these how are these speakers, how are these people found? Are these these people that come forward and want to sort of discuss I'm just I'm just intrigued because I think it's amazing you're getting these people from all around the world to come together and have this chat, which is which is such a positive thing, isn't it? I find it it's once you ask people about it, I find they want to talk about it. Mm. Um, and certainly as as regards um, perhaps the, the the contacts in Indonesia and, and Nepal and the globalized south rata obviously has many contacts um she's she runs the uh, rata budal foundation as well as the global south coalition for dignified menstruation and some of her contacts have obviously come forward because it's 
it's it's a really great platform for them to to try and get their message out because I think perhaps they've been speaking about it, but they can't get their message out. Mm. And if you if you look at um, UN Women, if you look at their website now, there seems to be more about um, menstruation. But I think even to a couple of months ago, there was one mention of menopause. Mm. Whereas UN Women as a as a as a global collective, I think that would be a superb platform mm. to start to get the message out about menopause, certainly as regards gender equality. And if you look at some of the sustainable development goals, I think unless we're having womb to tomb dignity, if you want to, to, to refer to it as that, that, then gender equality, I think, will always remain out with our grasp. There's a Native American saying, actually, which I um, I shared in my uh, my yoga for perimenopause and menopause class this morning, which I'll, I'll just share with you because it just seems really uh, poignant. At her first period, a girl meets her wisdom. Through her menstruating years, she practices her wisdom. And at menopause, she becomes her wisdom. And it just resonated when you say womb to tomb, because actually there's a journey there as well. It's not, you know, it's not just the menopause journey. There's a journey from puberty um, uh, forwards. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think, you know, we talk about an awareness of menopause and um, having those discussions openly. But what we what we also I think need to be thinking about is is those long term health implications, certainly of an earlier menopause, but even those even, you know, going through the menopause at the average age in the UK of fifty one, but thinking about the, the health implications because Actually, those are those are huge, aren't they? And those are something that um, is often not discussed enough. I think we're having the discussion in a way, improving that discussion around the menopause, but thinking about those long-term health implications. Is that something that you try and incorporate, Helen, in those discussions within the menopause cafes and the groups that you run? Within the menopause cafes, because they are in essence group-directed discussions, it tends to be whatever subjects come up from from those who attend. But absolutely, um, there, there's always now the focus on HRT. Mm. People want to know others' experiences of HRT because I think it's it's still unfortunately seen as this, you know, this, this most awful mm. evil thing um, because of that, uh, that study that we now know is completely flawed. Uh, I think that's done a huge amount of damage. But thankfully, I think that the tide is definitely turning there. But yes, there is, there is definitely more of an emphasis on self-care broadly but what can we do in terms of looking after our bone health our heart health and our brain health where obviously HRTs just ticks all of those boxes but also uh, the other things that we can be doing and I, and I think that's why menopause is a great time to perhaps audit our lives or just audit what's working for us and what isn't and I wonder whether menopause is almost mother nature's way of saying hang fire you know if it's not going well for you maybe look at what you're doing and alter some of those things so it was a, it was a really vital and timely wake-up call for me that I could not go on living the way I was because it wasn't healthy and it wasn't sustainable so yeah and I write about things now because I would like others not to follow in my footsteps mm. because if I can avoid that happening then then I will <laughs> Helen, it was interesting you mentioned just before the break there some other lifestyle changes or choices that perhaps you made. And for some women, they sort of get to perimenopause and think, 
I thought I had everything sorted, you know, I perhaps know what clothes suit me and I know what I like to eat and, you know, my hair's looking great, whatever it might be. And then suddenly these changes begin to happen. And as you mentioned earlier, some women really feel they're, they're losing their mind. Um, and uh, I often cite Dr. Lisa Moscone. I love her description of the of estrogen being the conductor of the brain. Um, and I know myself, I've made quite a lot of changes over the last three or four years and only recently started HRT actually about a month ago because I was managing my symptoms through what I was eating, through my yoga practice, you know, just through general lifestyle choices, which weren't always easy because I've got a sweet tooth. Um, but, you know, I was making those choices and I was able to manage them quite well. And then they just got a little bit too much. Um, and that's when I began to explore H HRT. I'm very lucky to have a sister as a, as a GP with a, a special interest in, uh, in menopause. And I knew it was, it was safe. It was just navigating what version of HRT I wanted to take. But as you say, lots of other things we can do to help ourselves. Is there anything specifically that, that's helped you or that you enjoy doing to look after your long-term health? Dominantly being a bit kinder to myself. I'm a big self-compassion fan now. And, you know, again, in, in, in the way that I never thought I would be running around in Lycra, I, I never thought I would actually say that because it's, and this might sound slightly sort of judgmental, but for me, it was always very touchy-feely. And... I'd always thought, no, that sort of thing's not for me. Mm. I don't need it. It's it's great for other people if it works for them, but I don't need it. Um, and my menopause journey taught me, uh, taught me A, the value of friendships, but also the value of being kind to myself and practicing self-compassion. And I'm a recovering perfectionist. So, you know, I, again, I would be really hard on myself there. And that's where self-compassion comes in. Um, I have a, quite a lot of shame around some childhood issues. I was sexually abused as a young girl and starting to deal with that um, after my, my surgery as well. That, um, that brought a lot of other stuff to the fore. And compassion-focused therapy was game-changing, really game-changing, because if I can't show myself compassion, it's very hard to show it to somebody else and... and so, uh, yeah, compassion, big fan. And cold water bathing, definitely, definitely. I do like to hop into a, a bath full of ice cold water. Um, it deals, it deals with hot flushes, actually. Um, if I have, I, I have an eight-minute cold water bath first thing in the morning, I can guarantee I will not have another hot flush that day, which... That, great. That is amazing. So having done various, I guess, tests on yourself, you realise that that is what stops a hot flush coming. That's incredible. It's, 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 I mean, it was almost by serendipity because I'd, I'd been out running and I noticed that's something else postmenopausally. If I'm running or if I'm doing any exercise, I get really overheated and I can't cool myself down afterwards. Um, you know, so sort of flinging all my clothes off and just trying to cool down. And the only thing that, that worked was, you know, before I go for a run, I fill the bath up with cold water. So that the moment I walk in the front door and I'm in Amazing. eight minutes doing the Wim Hof, you know, enjoying it. This is just so fantastic. And yeah, it, it just seems to reset my internal thermostat. 
There's been quite a few studies around it actually now as well, haven't there? I know, I know most of the studies have looked at, um, or quite a lot of the studies have looked at kind of low mood and depression and how cold water therapy can really, really help. Um, but uh, yeah, there is, there's also evidence that it that helps. And so as, you, as, you, as it works for you, it's always really great to share these tips for listeners. I'm wondering how many listeners are going to uh, want to jump into an eight minute long cold water bath. I do do a cold shower. That's something I, I do, which I really do enjoy. And it took a while. I started with my toes work my way up and now I can quite easily either at the start of the shower or the end of the shower just do a blast of of cold water and it's really really helped and um, for those not living near lakes or seas um, and not perhaps tempted by Helen's suggestion of a cold water bath I can highly recommend a a quick cold shower. Absolutely so so Helen we always sort of ask whoever's on the show not not necessarily top tips but what if you could tell yourself a few pieces of advice looking back maybe even before your surgery or even further back from that it doesn't matter but if you could tell yourself some tips what what would those tips be and what would you want to pass on to others I would say to myself know yourself Mm. trust yourself and be yourself and those three come from Professor Stephen Joseph, his book on authenticity. And yeah, those three things just really would, would, would wrap it all up for me because not being able to be myself, and by that I mean in terms of my neurodiversity, I never had the courage to just be different. I always wanted to just blend in and just, you know, fly under the radar screen. And now I, I'm quite happy celebrating my neurodiversity um, because it's who I am and um, I found my tribe. Mm. But um, yeah, definitely I would say authenticity, that's that's a biggie. It's interesting how you sort of get to this time of, of life and realise that, you know, that's okay. <laughs> it's taken a long time to reach that point for many women, but it's it's interesting how... You know, again, going back to that second spring, you realise that this is this is okay. It's okay to stick your head above the parapet and go, I'm I'm gonna talk about this or I'm gonna shout about it loudly, but I'm also gonna accept who I am. And that's obviously you know, not easy for many, many people for various reasons, but but just being able to talk that through with yourself, I think, is really vital. Something I'd love to pick up on as well that Helen had mentioned earlier was compassion. I think that's something that's it's just really needed, isn't it? A bit of self-compassion at this time. We also ask, don't we, all our um, interviewees towards the end of the interview is, is the vagina question, Helen? Um, Go for it. <laughs> um, so we ask if if your vagina could wear something, what would it wear? And this is going back to the vagina monologues um, play that Caroline and I saw many years ago. And I think Caroline's was a Vivian Westwood corset. We've had caftans, haven't we? I sort of am slightly envious of everyone's answer now. So my vagina is currently wearing um, a caftan, some gold, some diamonds. Um, maybe Caroline's Vivian Westwood corset. But what would yours wear, Helen? <laughs> Mine would like to wear two things, if that's possible. Um, Wellington boots. I, I just, God, I love to be just out in a pair of Wellington boots, obviously. <laughs> other clothing but um wellington boots and also i i have a soft spot for tartan oh it's an understatement and i've got a tartan baseball cap so i think i think wellington's an 
and a tartan baseball cap. It, it's a look I can carry off, I think. <laughs> oh, it's a brilliant look. I've, I've currently got an image of a, a tartan baseball cap on, on some wellies. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Helen, for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing your story and, and all the amazing work you're doing in your different roles, your different volunteer roles and trustee role at the Menopause Cafe as well. Yeah, thank I, you so much for the invitation. It's brilliant, Helen. I'm I'm in awe of all the things you're currently doing and how you're juggling it all, but it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you.